The Evolution of the Actor by Arthur Pollock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Bologna Times. The Evolution of the Actor by Arthur Pollock for the Drama, a Quarterly Review Collection. August 1915. If a child is told some very welcome piece of news or afforded a great or unexpected pleasure, his joyful emotions often refuse to be suppressed. He cannot resist the temptation to dance for joy. He may even turn a clumsy somersault. Thus he gives his emotions physical expression, translates them freely in terms of lively movement. That, the representation of feeling by physical action, the expression of inner being by outward seeming, is acting in its lowest and simplest form. And from some such tendency, perhaps, the act of acting sprang into being in the childhood of all peoples. The earliest phase in the conventionalization of the means for expressing such spontaneous primal emotions is the dance. The first actor, therefore, was, more properly speaking, a dancer. At the beginning, the emotions that found vent in his dancing were his own simple ones, but later, as his ability as a medium of expression grew, and gradually begot greater appreciation, he was called upon to reproduce, by the same means, the emotions of other and imaginary persons. Such, at any rate, was the origin of the acting art in Greece. The drama of the Greeks, evolving as it did from the choral dances in honor of Dionysus, demanded of its first interpreters that they be dancers only. Almost simultaneously, it is true, singing also was required of them, but dancing was the fundamental requisite, and, as has been lately emphasized, Attic theatrical art not only originated in Orcasus, but was in all its principles, even throughout the days of its greatest development, based upon the dance, for every movement and gesture of the actor was influenced by its rhythm. As the festival dancing about the altar of Dionysus became less a mere improvisation and stiffened into conventional forms, the dancers grew from enthusiastic novices into practiced performers. And as soon as special qualifications and training were demanded, chorus dancing became a profession. Today, when a particularly capable chorus girl outshines the rest, she is given a line or two to speak, or a solo dance. Just so, by his superiority, some Greek dancer differentiated himself from his fellows and was honored by being allowed to act as leader, and in that capacity to recite, unaccompanied by the rest. Soon he ceased to be no more than a reader of the lines assigned him, began to claim as his own the experiences he recounted, and after a while was given opportunity, actually, to impersonate legendary heroes. Next, with the use of the masks, which Thespis, a dancer, as the poets themselves were then called, is said to have introduced in the 6th century B.C., this one interpreter was enabled to enact in turn the parts of several persons. At this point, the profession of the actor, as distinct from that of the chorus dancer, began. To Aeschylus is attributed the introduction of a second actor, and Sophocles soon made it possible to have three speaking characters on the scene at once. 
This number, it is generally believed, was never thereafter increased in tragedy. In comedy, too, Cretinus is credited with having set a limit of three upon the number of impersonators. When the action of the play demanded the presence simultaneously of more than three important persons, only three of these were given lines to speak. The remaining characters stood about in silence. Thus the performers in a Greek play were divided into three classes. There were the chorus men, actors, and silent impersonators, or mutes. In none of these classes were women included. Female parts were always taken by men. The duties of the members of the chorus were somewhat similar in kind to those of a modern chorus in comic opera, though a much greater degree of perfection in all the branches of their art was demanded of them. They sang, and occasionally recited, always accompanying their words with a form of dance which consisted of fluid rhythmic movements. Calling the whole body into play and eloquently expressing the emotions their own words or those of the actor described. As the number of actors increased and greater prominence was given to their part in the play, the importance of the chorus was appreciably lessened until, in the new comedy, it seems to have disappeared entirely. Of the actors, as distinct from the chorus men and mutes, There were also three classes. The most important of the three actors in a play was the protagonist. The other two were spoken of as the deuteragonist and the tritagonist, and were hardly more than his assistants. The protagonist was the featured actor of a production. The star, to him, were always allotted the fattest parts. He seems also to have been assigned a great number of female roles. Dramatic poets made their plays to fit him, just as dramatists have always built plays around great actors and with their personalities and accomplishments in mind. And when the plays were produced, he was made the pivot of the whole performance. No star of today is given greater prominence, and probably none is more arrogant than some of the Greek protagonists grew to be. The other two actors were instructed to subordinate themselves to him. Entirely, and to do nothing that might distract attention from their colleague or excite the approbation of the crowd in their behalf. He often saw to it himself that no opportunity was given them to do so. Since so large a share in the performance was granted him, he was proportionately responsible for the success of the play. The poet's reputation was often in his hands. Hence, the best protagonists were, like the stars of our own day, in great demand. Great honor was accorded them. Their victories in the dramatic contests were recorded on commemorative tablets, and they were made the pets of monarchs. Considerable, however, was exacted of the deuteragonist. His duties were important, and he had of necessity to be capable. The tritagonist. On the other hand, was called upon only when his participation was absolutely indispensable. Every part that could possibly be taken by the protagonist was given him. In fact, on many occasions, he took great trouble to change masks rather than entrust either of the other two with lines that seemed to require special ability. The mutes, though essential, were unimportant. 
Of the Greek actor, a great deal was required. First of all, of course, it was highly important that he be a man impressive in appearance and in his movements graceful and stately. The nature of the drama he interpreted demanded that he combine the talents of the singer and the dancer with those of the actor, and that he have the training and thorough education of each. Some of the more emotional passages in his parts called for a musical rendition, and the qualifications of the dancer were always called into play by his posturings, his sensuous movements, and his smooth and facile gestures. And along with this threefold demand upon him came several handicaps the stately flowing draperies and the high and awkward boots that custom and theatrical conditions required the tragic actor to wear though they gave him an appearance of sculptural beauty and imposing stature prohibited quick or elaborate motion therefore he had to make the quiet simple movements to which they limited him so much the more rhythmic and impressive his poses and gestures so much the more plastic and expressive circumstances also made it imperative that he wear a tall cumbersome mask covering his face and head though the vastness of the greek open-air theatres would have made impotent the finer shades of facial expression the mask prevented was in fact a substitute for even the most obvious the actor could not as can the actor of to-day stand quietly about and by delicate facial play reveal his thoughts and emotions or show the effects the words of other characters made upon him when his voice was silent his sole means of making his feelings evident lay in movements of his body and limbs therefore for him the art of listening was an extremely difficult one for the sacrifice of facial expression he had to compensate with suggestive gesticulation and by a flexibility of voice that afforded a great variety of delicate inflections tones and qualities it was only by the most assiduous and protracted training upon his part that his voice acquired this flexibility and at the same time the emotional power that the plays or poets called for upon his voice above everything else his success depended and as demosthenes hinted it was by his voice that he was judged it must indeed have been a distinct and incisive as well as a strong voice that could make all the nuances of expression carry throughout an audience of twenty thousand or so but it was not only obstacles presented by the physical conditions of the theatre that the voice had to overcome the many beauties of the language he declaimed made necessary perfect enunciation precise changes of pitch impressive pauses and accurate placing of accents not only did his native tongue entail such meticulous attention to details that are so often ignored to-day but his highly cultured audience would endure nothing short of perfection in this matter of articulation and accentuation so to meet all these requirements the actor must have a trained intellect and absolute control of a vocal apparatus that in itself was an exceptional instrument persevering practice and continuously perfect condition were indispensable
like the modern athlete the greek actor had to be always in training by the time the greek drama had developed to the point where one actor was used it had lost much of the spontaneity that marked the first phase of its evolution and had become a conventional and formal art thus early the young actor found himself forced to follow traditional methods in his acting in the period in which aeschylus produced his plays the actor's art consisted of simple unrealistic declamation accompanied by slow and dignified action a dramatic representation of the complexity of everyday life was not considered necessary for the reason that the people depicted by the poets were not the kind of men to be met with every day upon the streets but this conventional style becoming irksome to the growing artist was gradually discarded the actor began inevitably to go to nature for his models strove to use the actualities of the life he saw about him as the touchstone of his art callipides and nicostratus the latter of whom possessed a style which his contemporaries considered perfect were pioneers in the field of naturalistic acting and led the way in this departure from the methods of the past by their unprecedented disregard for the best traditions of aeschylean old school they caused great consternation in the ranks of the latter and brought about a revolution in acting methods the period of natural acting which the efforts of these men inaugurated gave greece her greatest actors such men as polos theodorus aristodemus and neoptolemus it was polos who when his role required that he weep over an urn of human ashes brought upon the scene so belasco-like was his zeal in the search for realistic touches a vessel containing the ashes of his own dead son over these he wept with great sincerity and effectiveness he was in many respects the best actor of his time theodorus however had acquired great ability in expressing strong emotions in a natural manner by his wonderful powers of playing upon the feelings of his auditors he is said to have moved to tears the tyrannical alexander of thera who rather than be seen weakly weeping at the simulated sufferings of theodorus when he had many times looked without emotion upon the pain his own cruelties had caused fled from the theatre these great figures in greek dramatic history were all tragedians of the comic actors less is known they were probably more fortunate than the players of tragedy in having to contend against fewer of the difficulties arising from the strictures of theatrical convention but they appear so far as is ascertainable never to have succeeded in reaching so high a plane of artistic achievement to so great a degree did the players of the period of natural acting develop their art that the contemporary dramatist was relegated to a place of secondary importance the output of the poets seemed to have declined in quality as the actor grew in skill until in the latter days of greece the actor had to resort for dramatic material to the great plays of former poets the staging of these old masterpieces was put into the hands of the protagonist who thus became an actor-manager as the first poets had been before him with no new dramatists detracting from the attention accorded him the actor's skill became the object of chief interest
He directed all his efforts toward the perfection of the art of acting. As a result, his powers grew overripe and went to seed. Finally, naturalism and virtuosity degenerated into mere mechanical cleverness, and trick imitations of the sounds of nature were substituted for the portrayal of character and emotion. Through the four phases discernible in the development of the histrionic art in Greece, the art of acting seems continually to revolve. Simple, unassuming recitation grows into conventional declamation. Conventionality succumbs to the demands of nature. Naturalism descends to tricks. As far as the actor's staying in the community is concerned, it could hardly have been better. He was looked upon with the veneration due a priest and the admiration accorded a great and cultured artist. Many honors and special privileges were bestowed upon him, and the remuneration he received for his labors was ample. The Roman drama, being, as it was, a backwash of the Greek, added little to the art of acting and detracted infinitely from the esteem in which the actor himself was held. In Italy, tragedy lost a great deal of its dignity, while comedy gained wide popularity, hence the greatest chance was given the comedian to develop. The Romans built their theaters, with seats for their senators, filling the orchestra, which Greek custom had reserved for the chorus. So the chorus was eliminated. Dancing, therefore, ceased to be a fundamental of the actor's art. Singing also was practically dropped, though for a time the Roman producers made a pretense of retaining it. But the actor, or histrio, as he was called, was not, until the time of Terence, at any rate, handicapped by being made to wear the mask, and never wore the Greek tragic boot. Thus he was permitted greater freedom. As a result of these less artificial conditions, one phase of Greek acting was carried to a more advanced stage of development. Gesture was made an end in itself, and finally established as the independent art of pantomime, which, in the days of Rome's decline, almost crowded out all other dramatic forms. This branch of acting was, before it degenerated, a distinct addition and numbered among its performers such famous pantomimes as Bathellus and Pylades. The Romans did not limit themselves to three actors, as the Greeks had done, but made use of as many as the number of characters in the play called for. Besides the actors of tragedy and comedy, and the new type of performers that the art of pantomime produced, there was a fourth class, the actors of the mimes. Women were included among the participants in these compact little comedies in verse, and had considerable effect upon their character. With the plays of Terence, women were introduced into the regular drama also. When the Greek drama was imported into Italy, Livius Andronicus, who was credited with having made the first Latin adaptations, had to resort for performers to freedmen and slaves. So, from the start, the members of the acting profession were not looked upon with favor. The actor, in fact, was an object of contempt to his countrymen, and his lot was a sorry one. Any citizen of Rome who took up acting as a profession forfeited thereby all his civic rights. If a soldier became an actor, he paid for his choice with his life. 
the histrion was considered a worthless person and often even classed with thieves deserters panders and similarly undesirable characters nevertheless when eventually the drama came to be one of the principal sources of amusement for the populace his presence was looked upon as indispensable but socially he was an outcast in the matter of his more immediate connection with the play presentation he was no less unfortunate an error in the performance of his part upon the stage earned him a flogging from his manager as well as very bad treatment at the hands of an audience even freer in its expressions of disapproval than the audiences in greece of men so badly treated much in the way of artistic accomplishment could not be expected a few actors however overcame all these handicaps bolsius for instance rome's greatest comedian received from sulla the high honor of being raised from the low rank of the ordinary actor and made a senator for him acting was also financially profitable on occasions he is said to have received for a single performance about one hundred and fifty dollars and while in his best years he was accorded an annuity of something like twenty two thousand dollars he and his contemporary sopus a tragedian represent the best that roman actors achieved by the time bossius became to attain prominence acting had reached its bombastic exaggerated stage but he did much to moderate the excesses which were part of the methods of his predecessors and by his eminence and good character he was of material aid to the actor in general since he raised the standards of the profession and inspired respect for it with the end of the theatres in rome the art of acting died attempts were made to revive it but they were without success it had to be reborn and it was not until the early middle ages that the process of germination began end of the evolution of the actor by arthur pollock from the august nineteen fifteen edition of the drama a quarterly review of dramatic literature